Hi there, it's Matt here, and welcome back to this second episode all about sleep, infants, children, teenagers, and I am once again joined by my dear friend and guest, Dr. Craig Canapari, who, as you may remember, is the director of the Pediatric Sleep Center at Yale Medical School. And he's also the author of the outstanding book for parents, It's Never Too Late to Sleep Train. Today, we're going to be speaking again about sleep and infants. And we're going to focus on the lightning rod topic of sleep training. So let's dive straight in, Craig. Let me be thick-headed with the most idiotically blunt of all questions to train or not to train? When is it appropriate to sleep train an infant and why? And perhaps when is it not appropriate to sleep train? And indeed, maybe we could even start with an overview of definitions so that nobody gets confused as to what sleep training is from a definitional perspective before we (laughs) answer those questions, before you answer those questions and I avoid any of the blowback. Sleep training simply means making some behavioral changes to the way you interact with your baby or child with the goal of improving their sleep at night. I would say that it is analogous to cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia in adults, and the parallels are really interesting sometimes between the two interventions. It's controversial in some circles for a couple of different reasons. First of all, Sleep training to me encompasses a whole range of behavioral things that you can do. It could include something as simple as picking an appropriate time for your child to go to bed and having a bedtime routine. To me, if that's a change, that falls under the umbrella of sleep training. Sleep training often gets lumped together with a sleep training technique called extinction, which in the popular mind is also referred to as CIO or cry it out sleep training. We can talk in a little bit. That is a technique that may be correct for some children and it's not dangerous, although it's not fun to have your child crying for extended periods of time. When I was going to publish my book, I didn't want to have sleep training in the title because it has this certain valence to it. (laughs) And my agent kind of correctly said, nobody's going to even know what your book's about. I'm like, okay, fair enough. I've learned to love the title. It's a great title. It's much better than Why We Sleep, by the way. I don't know. Why We Sleep, it's all right there, right? I think that whether or not you want to sleep train, there's a couple of things to think about. I think first off, if your child is having a significant amount of sleep difficulty, it's always worth having a conversation with your pediatrician. Could there be some medical issue that's interfering with your child's sleep? Here are some common ones in infancy and early childhood. Eczema or atopic dermatitis, which is an itchy rash, which has actually been shown to give as much sleep deprivation that children the next day actually look like they have ADHD if the eczema is not well controlled. Acid reflux in infants where stomach contents will come up. Asthma, kids are coughing at wheezing night or kids who are snoring and might have sleep apnea. So I think if there's any concerns that there could be a medical issue, absolutely pick up the phone and make an appointment with your friendly neighborhood pediatrician. In terms of deciding whether or not sleep training may be appropriate for your child, I'd say first off, is your baby 
older than four months of age. Generally before then, I don't feel that kids are ready to self-soothe necessarily. Also, are you actually unhappy with your child's sleep? I think that a lot of parents, say if I meet someone socially and they're feeding their 10-month-old 10 times a night with breastfeeding, maybe they're bed sharing or something like that. And they're like, well, I'm sure you're going to want me to sleep train. And I'm like, well, if you're happy and everybody's well-rested in the household, I think it's okay, right? There's lots of different ways that families make their way through the world. But if you are struggling because your child's sleep is so fragmented or you're spending so much time at bedtime and during the night attending to your child, working towards a goal of independent sleep at bedtime might be a good idea. And I also think it's important to really understand what's realistic, right? If you have a four-month-old and you want that child to sleep through the night and never feed, well, that's probably not going to happen. Do you want your 13-month-old to sleep till 10 a.m. on the weekends? That is also not going to happen. So understanding where your child fits in the normal sleep ranges is very important so you can have a realistic expectation of what success is going to look like. And let me just come back to two things. The first, you'd mentioned CBTI, and previously on this show, I've done a mini-series all about insomnia, and the last episode there, we go into great detail regarding what CBTI, or cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, is. And I think so many people are quick to embrace the idea of CBTI as a possible treatment for adults with insomnia and potentially preferential over sleeping pills. But what's so interesting is that when you bring many of those same principles, it's not identical, but many of those same behavioral principles down into infants and babies, all of a sudden it becomes incredibly controversial and there's just mountains of Reddit threads and vitriol that's spent out there. It always just surprised me the the contrast between those two. And I know where some of that comes from, in part because I've read your book. So help me understand those differences. Tell me more about the individuals in the, in the history of sleep science who've developed these techniques, what cry it out method is, why it's controversial. A sponsor of today's show is Inside Tracker. Now, Inside Tracker is a service and they come to your home, as they do for me, and they will analyze your blood and your DNA to know precisely what is happening inside of you regarding a host of different blood and metabolic and hormonal health metrics. What I also like is that in addition to the results, they then provide you with a personalized set of recommended, I guess, sort of lifestyle changes and suggestions to better optimize your health as a consequence of what those results were for you, that unique snowflake. So you can use the link insidetracker.com forward slash Matt Walker, and you will get a healthy discount from your purchase. So again, that is insidetracker.com forward slash Matt Walker. So the backstory is some very clever psychological researchers put forth the idea of attachment parenting in the 60s. Psychologist Mary Ainsworth was one of the leaders in this field. And it's something that's so obvious today is the idea that 
providing comfort to your child will help your child to be confident enough to successfully explore the world. Prior to uh, Dr. Ainsworth's work and also some of the work of Dr. Spock, in the first half of the 20th century, there was this idea that you would actually, quote unquote, spoil your child if you hugged them, gave them affection, comforted them when they cried, which now is so obvious to us that that is crazy. But when these researchers in the 60s studied this and demonstrated that it was the case, it really was a paradigm shift in parenting. The idea that if your child skins their knee, you should actually pick them up and, and hold them and tell them it's okay. Where this started to get controversial was in the 90s when Dr. William Sears and his wife Martha Sears published this book called The Baby Book. When they talked about attachment parenting, they weren't really referring to the sort of idea of comforting your child if they're upset. They were referring to a very specific way of parenting, which they popularized, was that one parent would be a stay-at-home parent, that bed sharing, child wearing, and nursing on demand was really the safest and only way to parent your child. And in fact, letting them fuss or cry would flood the baby's brains with stress hormones, which would, and I'm quoting from his book, quote, nerves won't form connections to other nerves and will degenerate, mm. which really is not the case. Now, Dr. Sears, the studies that he referenced were predominantly studies of children in Russian and Romanian orphanages where children were never picked out all throughout childhood. They didn't have almost any physical contact, as I understand it, from those studies. They were bereft of so much physical contact. Absolutely. And that is very different from what we're talking about here, which is the idea of if you were going to try extinction sleep training, we'll talk about the particulars of that in a minute, that you would actually cause brain damage to your child. My wife hates this anecdote, but talking about when my, uh, my younger son was six and was crying because he found an ant on his donut. And, you know, I wasn't worried he was going to be brain damaged afterwards, right? I mean, the fact <laughs> is, is that kids, they cry all the time. And it's actually part of development that babies cry. Should we let our babies cry all the time incessantly without attention? No. However, if your child's sleep is terrible and you've decided to try extinction sleep training after talking about it with your pediatrician, it's very safe. And actually, there was a researcher named Harriet Hiscock in Australia who did a great study looking at a five-year follow-up of children that had had sleep training and children who had not. And they didn't see any changes in attachment to the parents. They didn't see any changes in serum cortisol levels, any evidence of worse performance when these kids started kindergarten. To my knowledge, there's not been any study showing that any of this is dangerous at all. And we do know that poor sleep in babies and children does have pronounced negative effects on parents, specifically mothers and postpartum depression. That is a real problem. Plus, as I tell parents who come to see me, it's important that when you're driving your child somewhere that you not get in a car accident, which is a very real risk of chronic yeah, sleep deprivation. Yeah. I also think that parents who are well-rested can be more attentive to their child's needs and more sympathetic. Although, you know, honestly, we all lose our temper with our kids sometimes. What I loved about your book too is that you're not dictatorial. I think I've been very guilty of being dictatorial regarding sleep. You're not that way. And I think you're saying, look, 
none of this has to be for everyone. It's okay if you don't want to do sleep training. Not everyone has to do sleep training. You are setting some guidelines to say, look, you know, it's probably best that your baby is above four months old before you start, if you're going to do some sleep training, somewhere between before four to six months, then probably just not neurologically mature enough to be ready to do any kind of training of that sort. But Let me come back because it's such a debated topic, the cry it out method. What would that typically look like? Help people understand who are just starting to read about this or let's say if I'm going to do like a a time-restricted eating type of experiment, you know, I could give you the standard protocol. If I was to do a cry it out method type of protocol with an infant who is, let's say, seven months old, What would it typically look like? Give some people who are not aware a sense of it, knowing that it's different and it can be very different, but generally just what does it involve? Absolutely. So first of all, why would a parent want to sleep train their child? It's actually usually because of the awakenings in the middle of the night, as opposed to the difficulty of bedtime, right? From a parent standpoint, if you have to rock your baby to sleep or you put your baby down drowsy but awake, and you're still out of the room by 8.15, it doesn't really matter to you in a practical sense. However, the problem is, is once children start to get object permanence, which is recognizing when some things are missing, and sometimes when people are missing, like mom or dad, if your child is used to you falling asleep at night and all of a sudden develops object permanence, Then when your child goes through their natural sleep cycle at night, right, they go through non-REM sleep, then REM sleep. It's very common for them to have a brief awakening. And if they notice that mom or dad are not present, then they will cry out and you will need to go in and rock your child back to sleep. And that's really much more painful to parents than the bedtime interaction. Hmm. It's the middle of the night interactions that are really so disruptive to parental sleep. Like if you laid your child down at eight o'clock, whether or not you rock them to sleep, and then they wake up at six the next day. I mean, you're pretty excited. That's great. You don't have to make a change. However, and this happened with my older son, we had everything figured out. He was sleeping great. And then around five months of age, my wife was nursing him to sleep. And then he started waking up once at night. And then he started waking at 11 or 12. And then at two in the morning, in the middle of the night, of course, you don't even know what to do because you're so tired. But really, the critical intervention is teaching your child to fall asleep at bedtime. If your child starts falling asleep independently at bedtime without you there, then those nighttime awakenings are going to start dropping out. So when we talk about sleep training methods, they are just different ways of teaching a child to fall asleep independently without mom or dad present. It doesn't have to be a parent present, but if it's something else that is not present in the middle of the night, let's say if you play music at bedtime until your child falls asleep and then it's not playing in the middle of the night or with an older child, uh, because we don't recommend anything soft in the crib for infants, but say a 15 month old who can't find their stuffed animal in the middle of the night or is looking for a pacifier. These are all sleep onset associations And learning to not need them at bedtime makes sleep better in the middle of the night. That's such a classic presentation of you rock your child to sleep. He or she falls asleep for three or four hours. They go through that nice period of slow wave sleep. 
And then all of a sudden you're getting into bed and you hear your kid crying. It's the worst feeling in the world. <laughs> you know it's coming and like it gets you every time. So the most famous method of sleep training an infant is extinction sleep training. So extinction just means putting your child down, drowsy but awake, and ignoring them until they fall asleep. Modified extinction, which I think was created by Dr. Richard Ferber and was certainly popularized in his excellent book, is leaving the room, but then coming in to check at set intervals to tell your baby that you're okay. And also in the era before video monitors, also reassure yourself that everything was okay. Is it almost sort of like coming off a drug where you can't just sort of go cold turkey? What you do is first, it's quite high frequency touch where the dose remains quite high in terms of your coming back in. And, and then gradually the whole idea is that it's this nice curve of ramping your involvement down where you're leaving them for a little bit longer time before you go back in, almost as though you're starting to gradually reduce the dose of the parents in terms of the parental medication that you're giving to the child to the point where at some point they're flying solo and there's no intervention necessary. They'll cry for a while, then they'll have learned how to self-soothe they go back to sleep and there's no involvement required. We've completely come off the drug, as it were, at that point. Is that sort of the idea of the modified version of extinction? I think, and I don't want to speak for Dr. Ferber here, the schedules don't need to be that complicated, actually. I'm a practical person because I'm a clinical doc and I like simple plans. So I used to tell people just check every five minutes. And here's the key. A check is going in looking at your child, saying, I love you, it's time to go to sleep, good night, and leaving the room. It is not picking up your child. It is not crying hysterically yourself. There's this great scene in Modern Family where two parents are trying to sleep train the child and one of them is refusing to go in the other room and the other is insisting in going in the room and they spill into the room and are like rolling on the ground, like sort of like wrestling with one another. And the kid's just looking and be like, what's going on, dads? <laughs> <laughs> One of my colleagues, uh, Sarah Honecker, who's at University of Indiana, did this great study. And it was a real world study, which is not as maybe as scientifically precise, but what I like about this is because it generalizes immediately to parental experiences. She gave parents interested in sleep training information about techniques and then followed what happened. What they found was, is when the, the parents did extinction sleep training, whether or not it was with checks, the first night, the child cried for 40 minutes. The second night, the child cried for 20 minutes. And after that, it was crying for two or three minutes. So parents imagine that this is going to be hours of crying for weeks and weeks. This is a short intervention for people. And that's why I think that one of the reasons the cry out gets such a bad name is people imagine that it's going to be just months of agony. Right. Yeah, and if yeah. you've done this for a week and if you've not seen an immediate drop in crying, your child is probably not ready to do this. So usually we would say just wait a week or two and try again. Got it. Okay. I love the clarity over the scaremongering that's happened regarding spiking levels of cortisol deficits in neurons wiring themselves up because infants are crying and this idea that okay we're about to start doing cry it out therapy for the next six months of our lives no no no, no. folks it's honestly not like that this podcast is supported by athletic greens 
Now, Athletic Greens is a comprehensive nutritional drink, and it contains countless different health components. Let me stop there. I say countless. I actually know the company pretty well, and I know how the product is made. And I believe at last count, it's over 75 different vitamins and minerals and probiotics, prebiotics, and other whole food source nutrients. And you consume it every day. And I do drink Athletic Greens. And for the record, I buy my own supply because of all of the obvious sort of integrity trappings that come with free product. And I just don't want to get into that. So as I said, I know the company really quite well, including their stellar CEO. And I trust the creation and their manufacturing procedures. They've got all of the correct stamps, things like TGA and GMP stamps. Basically, they're rigorous. So anyway, if you are mindful of your health, then you may want to check them out at the link, which is athleticgreens.com forward slash Matt Walker. And if you use that link, you'll get some money off your first order and also some free travel packs. So that's athleticgreens.com forward slash Matt Walker. Let me come on to a final question, which I know you've spoken about before, which is the scenario of break glass in case of emergency. And what I mean is, in truth, what is the real consequence of a single bad night of sleep? For adults, I have definitely been guilty of leading people in the past to perhaps erroneously think that one bad night of sleep essentially means that the next day you're going to die at any moment. I gave a TED talk and I think it was called Sleep is Your Superpower. Someone said it could have been retitled sleep or else dot 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 and I, I kind of do feel a bit bad about that and I think you've been really good at helping people not make that mistake because I'm sure as new parents the night just keeps getting worse and worse for whatever reason maybe the infant is starting to go down with an infection or something's happening and they're just not sleeping well you start to catastrophize and ruminate and you think okay the next day is a disaster. Like my life is upturned. I'm going to be getting called from work to come back. What's going on? The nanny is going to be, what is going to happen? Is it as bad as some people worry it is? What should parents think about how bad a bad night of sleep is for the infant? For the baby, I don't worry too much about babies getting sleep deprived. And I'm going to tell you why. They can sleep anywhere when they need to. They can sleep in the stroller. They can sleep in the car. They find a way, if you look at it over time, even babies that sleep poorly are generally getting enough sleep. One important clarification is people talk a lot about, well, when you're trying to figure out when your child's a nap, could your kid get quote unquote overtired, meaning irritable and difficult to soothe. And I do think that is definitely can happen in infants. That's one of the things that parents struggle with. Maybe they're getting like a little bit of a circadian second wind. Maybe you've just kind of missed a, a window for this, right? Like, because we do know that there are windows where you're easier to fall asleep. But in general, I'm much more concerned about parents over time. And I think that you make a really good point, Matt, is that your baby is resilient. She has a bad night of sleep. She's going to be okay the next day. You have a bad night of sleep. You're going to be okay too. 
you know, but you probably shouldn't be like flying an airplane or something like that, right? I think more long-term, I would say to parents, I give you permission to want it to be better. If you are suffering, if you're feeling down, if your relationships are struggling, if work is not going well because your child is waking you up multiple times during the night, it is okay to want that to be better and to take steps to be better. We could talk all day about the different types of techniques people can use. I will say that there are some that may be associated with less crying. In infancy, there's usually a little bit of crying no matter what. In older kids, not necessarily. But if the cost of everyone in your house sleeping better is 40 minutes of crying on night one, 20 minutes of crying on night two, and no crying by a week, I think that's a pretty good trade-off to make. Yeah, I think it's so important that parents give themselves some degree of self-focus here to realize, firstly, being a good enough parent, being a good enough father or mother in terms of sleep is perfectly great. And that the real consequences that people should be concerned with regarding the baby perhaps not sleeping well is really the parents not getting enough sleep and the parents should give some priority back. Not of course, hundred percent, but should try to give some priority to themselves as well as their child, rather than exclusivity of priority to the child at all cost to the parent. There's no need for that. I think is such a take home that I got from, from your book. And by the way, it's not just the book folks. Craig has the most remarkable set of website resources. And so you will find resources there that we will link this website in the show notes. You just Google Craig Yale sleep, you know, infant pediatric, all of these things, you'll find it. And the resources are amazing. Okay, Craig, I think we have covered so much of the territory that we needed to today regarding to train, to not to train, what are the different kinds, what are the fears that you should no longer have based on the science, how you don't have to do it, you can do it, and just please keep a focus on yourselves too as parents. It's okay for you to be able to get the gift of sleep. I will thank Craig for the gift of his clinical and scientific expertise, and then I will thank you, the listener, for tuning in to this episode. We will return in the next episode where we will speak about not infants, but children. And we'll speak about kids and sleep and school start times and how it impacts their academic performance and why sleep is so critical at that age. So Craig, thank you so much again. Thanks so much for having me.